to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Next Thursday, April 19th, we've got a Smart Politics Happy Hour planned. You can join me, the Detroit Today team, and other WDET listeners at the Hamlin Pub in Shelby Township, where we're going to have smart conversations about politics, policy, news, and issues. We're going to be there from 6 to 8 p.m. We'll talk about transportation and infrastructure education this year's race for governor. I also want to talk with folks in Macomb about Macomb County and in the role that it played in the 2016 presidential election. I still get questions from people around the country when I travel about Macomb County and what happened there in November of 2016. That went a long way toward making Donald Trump the president of the United States. I would love to hear more from folks in Macomb about the choices that they made at the ballot box that year, why they did it, and how they think things are turning out right now. A little later in the show, we're also going to talk about real estate here in southeast Michigan and the apparent scarcity of starter homes, the new built sort of moderately priced homes that a lot of families uh, make their first home pr- purchase. Uh, there is apparently not a lot of those houses being built right now or sold, uh, creating a, a, a sort of opportunity gap for those families. We're going to have J.C. Reindel, who's a business reporter at the Detroit Free Press here, to talk about that issue. But up first, we have become accustomed to the weekly news cycle being interrupted by the quarter turn of information about Robert Mueller's investigation into the 2016 presidential Election, But this week saw a real blockbuster emerge. FBI agents raided President Trump's personal attorney's office in New York, reportedly seizing documents related to the president's affairs with two women. That's awfully close to the president himself, a fact which is reflected in Trump's response. He has fired off an angry series of tweets, practically accusing Mueller of treason. We want to spend a good deal of the show today talking about what Mueller is doing and how Trump is responding. Joining us first to discuss the legal dynamics surrounding this week's news is Barbara McQuaid. She is the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and a current law professor at the University of Michigan. Barb, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks very much, Stephen. Good morning. Yeah, it's great to hear from you. Um, Let's start with what happened this week and what you think the significance is of uh, this raid, of this turn in in the investigation. I saw some of the things you posted on on social media trying to explain the legal context for it. But how big of a deal is this? Well, it's it's interesting because uh, it, it appears from the reporting that the purpose of the uh, search warrants at uh, the offices of Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, is to find evidence against Cohen relating to his role in payments to uh, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal to keep them quiet. Could be campaign finance violations, bank fraud violations, et cetera, against him. But what's interesting there is that um, by looking in those files, um, they may stumble upon other files and other records that could implicate President Trump. Now, normally, such things are protected by the attorney-client privilege, but there's an exception to the privilege for evidence of crime or evidence of a fraud. And so if they were to find something like that, they could be used against President Trump, which may be why he is uh, reacting so hostily to uh, the search. Yeah. Uh, we, we see we have seen Robert Mueller sort of move against several different kinds of, of characters and players uh, in, this, in this saga. Robert Cohen... 
uh, or Michael Cohen is a very interesting uh, person in and of himself, how close he is to the president. I read uh, a piece uh, this morning that talks about how he's not just the president's personal lawyer, but that this is someone who has been part of the Trump organization for a really long time. And and so the question, I guess, is is how far uh, this this investigation goes sort of back into the president's past to try to find uh, evidence to, to to bring to bring charges. Well, there's been media reporting that Michael Cohen was involved in attempting to negotiate building a Trump Tower in Moscow, in reaching out to uh, the Putin administration, and working with Felix Sater, uh, who is another Trump advisor on matters with Russia. So all of that could be relevant because, it, to the extent it suggests financial relationships with Russia that created a situation of leverage over President Trump, mm-hmm. or to the extent he was engaged in, uh, you know, assisting uh, Russian oligarchs in money laundering and criminal activity could expose the president to blackmail. Even if it goes back some years, I think all of that could be very relevant to the Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. Yeah. Um, when when we uh, are talking about this investigation, of course, we have to talk about the president's response to it, which has been consistently pretty hostile. Um, uh, here, he, he is basically accusing Robert Mueller of treason. He says this is an attack on all of us. Uh, as a former U.S. attorney, how do you take uh, that kind of accusation here? Well, I think it's nonsense. Um, it's, it's either uh, one based on ignorance or based on the best uh, defense is a good offense, uh, because um, attorneys' offices are searched rarely, but they are searched from time to time. And in fact, there is a detailed protocol uh, within the Department of Justice for what you do when you conduct conduct a search on an attorney's office. Because of the sanctity of the attorney-client privilege, there are a number of procedures you need to go through if you're going to search, including very high-level consultation and approval from the Department of Justice, um, a plan for how you're going to look at the material, uh, creating a separate privilege team that's going to review the material separate from the prosecution team, and then when privilege material is identified, sharing it with a court for a determination as to whether it meets that crime or fraud exception so that it can be shared with the prosecution team. So um, I don't think it's an assault on American democracy. I think they are following this very carefully balanced protocol so that uh, attorneys can't be used as a shield for criminal activity. So. One of the things that I hear from people who are somewhat skeptical about what uh, Robert Mueller is doing is that this whole idea of uh, of a special prosecutor uh, being appointed to do these kind of things, it, it, it starts with one thing and then it seems to sort of creep around to lots of different things that don't seem immediately connected to the initial issue. And, and so here... I've heard from folks who say this was supposed to be about uh, Russia's involvement in the 2016 election and whether the president's campaign played uh, a role in in that connection in in, in some way. Uh, now we're talking about porn stars and payoffs to porn stars. Can you help? Uh, can you help the listeners understand how we got here and how that connects or doesn't connect to this initial inquiry? Well, you are right that um, so often we see these um, investigations creep into other areas, just as we did with President Clinton. Mm -hmm. But the idea is sort of this 
plain view doctrine that if a prosecutor is looking at one thing and finds evidence of other crimes in his plain view during the course of that investigation, he shouldn't just ignore it. Even the scope of Robert Mueller's mandate is that he's to investigate links to Russia and the Trump campaign and also any matters that arose or may arise during the investigation. Now, it does appear that Robert Mueller brought this to the acting attorney general in this case, Deputy Attorney General Rob Rosenstein, and said uh, at some point either Mueller advocated for this or Rosenstein decided this matter really is outside the purview of what uh, Robert Mueller's task is here as the special counsel. So we're going to take this and hand it off to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, which would be the appropriate place to look at that. That's where venue is. Um, And we'll give it to them for them to decide whether to seek this search warrant and whether to prosecute anything that comes out of that. So this is now in the hands of the Southern District of New York, which is run by a U.S. attorney appointed by President Trump to handle that and make any decisions about whether charges are to be filed. So um, it is a broad mandate. You're right, things can creep into it. But if they stumble upon criminal activity, they're not simply going to ignore it. Yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Barbara McQuaid. She's the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, now teaching at the University of Michigan. We're talking about the investigation of Robert Mueller, which this week had uh, some explosive news for us in the sense that uh, Michael Cohen, the president's personal lawyer, saw his law offices raided in New York. That brings the investigation, it seems, a little closer each week, maybe uh, a little closer to the president himself. Uh, We want to hear from you. What do you think about this raid on Michael Cohen's offices? What do you think about the Mueller investigation more broadly? Do you think uh, it is uh, pursuing leads and getting us to a place that we need to know about what happened during the 2016 presidential election? Or do you think this is something that's gone sort of far afield and is sprawling out over uh, issues that don't have to do with that 2016 election? Do you think uh, maybe we need to revisit that uh, special counsel uh, statute that allows for this kind of investigation to take place? Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. So that's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Scott in Novi. Scott, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, how are you doing, Steve? And Good. How are you? McLeod. Um, listen, um, ultimately, it's my opinion that um, unless you're in Mr. Moeller's office, you don't know what he knows. You don't know what he's looking at. And everything else is conjecture and uh, fed by a 24-hour news cycle. Uh, and it should be looked through a prism of, of bias, whether it be Fox's bias or MSNBC, where Mrs. Ms. McQuaid appears quite a bit, or, um, or your bias. Um, you're guessing. Yeah. We're all guessing. No, and, I, uh, I admit to that, uh, Scott. We won't, know, we won't know what Mueller knows until he, until he speaks about it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, do you think we should just not be be talking about this at all, Scott? I, I, I you know I find myself I'm very political. I've been I'm I'm a former elected official. I know my I know my stuff. Um, I find myself tuning out uh, MSNBC hmm. these days and news programs uh, because I just can't take the uh, the bombardment. Hmm. Um, it's a bit overdone uh, and. Uh, and I'm sympathetic to the investigation. I think the investigation needs to proceed. But I think we just need to 
take a breath and let Mueller do his work. Yeah. And uh, not buy into it. Well, I think that's a fair it's a fair criticism, Scott. Um, I'm not sure I entirely agree. But Barbara McQuaid, I'll give you a chance to to respond to that. Uh, Are we making too much of what we see uh, emerge out of this investigation? Are we sort of attaching conjecture uh, and and speculation to the, the sort of bare bone facts that that come out of uh, uh, the the things that happen, and are we doing that inappropriately? Well, I think Scott makes a very good point, which is we only know a tiny portion of what Robert Mueller knows, and there's lots yet yet to come. But I think the public interest in this is so great that we can't help but want to know more about it, want to discuss it, want to understand its significance as uh, facts roll out in real time. And I think an engaged citizenry has a responsibility to do that. I I agree that there are many people who will uh, make conjecture and speculation based on those things. I try to stick to the facts, but no doubt we all have our biases and our worldviews that creep into uh, our views. But um, I I think that uh, that is part of being a a politically engaged uh, member of a democracy. Yeah. And and I think it's worth noting that what we're talking about is is you know what actually happened this week i mean the idea that uh, the president's personal attorney saw his offices raided is significant in the certainly in the context of history in the in the context of of other investigations like this uh, i don't know that we need to conclude what he found uh, in that in, in that uh, raid, but the fact that it happened, I think, is is itself quite newsworthy. Um, well, and the fact that the president is tweeting about it and saying this is an assault on our democracy, sure. I think that it's uh, it, it makes it a fair uh, uh, point for people to respond to that and give their their reactions to that, so that he doesn't uh, have a monopoly on the opinions about the facts that are coming out. Yeah. Scott, again, thanks very much for the call and the questions. And don't tune us out. Keep listening. We will uh, continue the conversation. And we talk about lots of different things here on Detroit Today. I do appreciate the call and the question, though. Let's go to Frank in Lincoln Park. Frank, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Ms. McQuaid. Uh, uh, Ms. McQuaid's very busy. Uh, I like her uh, a lot. Um, I want to say that, you know, Donald Trump, uh, he behaves not as an innocent man behaves, but as a guilty man uh, behaves. And uh, um, Trump uh, neither shows the uh, – doesn't want to educate himself or uh, does not understand the law vis-a-vis the attorney-client privilege. And uh, I'm deeply concerned that the president's behavior – is more like an authority, authoritarian dictatorship and uh, less like a democratically uh, elected president. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but so many people around him support him and help and enable him to do this. And as far as the coverage goes, like Scott mentioned, Donald Trump does not get to, um, to be the only one who tells the story. The media has to cover everything that this man does and everything that he doesn't do. Mm. And you're playing a vital role in uh, getting that story out. And I, for one, am a citizen who appreciates that work. Frank, Uh, I I appreciate uh, the call and the comments there. I want to go back to that first idea that you were expressing, this idea that the president's behavior reflects uh, some guilt. Uh, Barbara McQuaid, you know, we've seen this before with uh, special investigations into into the presidency 
certainly seen lots of different presidents handle it differently. I don't think there's any question that that uh, Trump's behavior here is is different uh, and markedly different from what uh, other presidents have done. But he does seem to be winning through these tweets and and the other things that he says. He, he seems to be winning the opinions of the people who support the who support him. And so I guess one of the questions is whether whether he's, you know, uh, whether he's smart to be doing this, that uh, that it is to some degree uh, a popularity contest. Uh, the presidency is. And and he seems to be winning in some cases that war of of rhetoric. Yeah, you know, I think when you're a public figure like President Trump, there's sort of two battles that you're fighting, the the, the battle in the court of law and the battle in the court of public opinion. Right. And he seems to focus on the latter. He is a, a politician, a salesman, a businessman, and so that's the area he knows, and he focuses on that. But as a lawyer, if President Trump were my client, I would um, uh, every day be um, – uh, pulling out my hair because he makes a lot of statements that I think, as Frank said, um, seem like a person who's guilty and not innocent and also can really be used against him to his detriment. You know, all of these tweets can be used as statements against him at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even the statement he made the other day on Air Force One when he said he didn't know anything about the payment to Stormy Daniels may have actually opened the door to that search warrant because if he didn't know about it, then nothing about it is protected by the attorney-client privilege. The privilege only protects communications designed to um, uh, obtain legal advice from your lawyer. So if you didn't know anything about it, then have at it. Go get those cone documents because they're not going to be protected by the privilege. So I think many of these statements, although uh, designed to help him uh, gain uh, approval and popularity with his base, can be very legally perilous for him. Yeah, uh, I, I also wonder what you think of his renewed threats to get rid of Mueller and uh, Rod Rosenstein, who uh, is is acting attorney general, uh, he does technically have the power to do that. Uh, but what are the potential ramifications if he does? Yeah, you know, it's a dangerous game. Uh, I think that uh, on the one hand, uh, Mueller and Rosenstein are career professionals who are going to take the evidence where it goes, even if that means it's at the doorstep of President Trump. Um, uh, and so that, uh, you know, in many ways, I think should give us comfort in our institutions. Um, If President Trump were to fire them, I think there would be a lot of political outrage about that. Um, Whether it becomes uh, necessary for him to do it, uh, um, self-preservation, I guess maybe that's a political risk he would be willing to take. But just as we saw with President Nixon in the Saturday Night Massacre, uh, that kind of spelled the end of his presidency when he fired uh, the independent counsel Archibald Cox. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, I, I think it would be a very dangerous step for him, but uh, I suppose he also has to measure that against the likelihood that they could get too close. Now, does that mean a successor would do something different? I mean, he would have the ability to uh, appoint a new deputy attorney general. Um, that person would then appoint a new special counsel. So I don't know that the investigation is going to go away just because he fires these people. He might be able to put someone in place who's a little more favorable, though, and who could, uh, uh, you know, um, deny approval for certain charges sure. and the like. So he could uh, put someone in there who's a little more friendly to him, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's go to Rhonda in Troy. Rhonda, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Good. I read an article this morning in The Atlantic because people keep throwing around the phrase constitutional crisis. Uh-huh. And so I really wanted to understand what that meant. 
And the Atlantic article says that it's possibly two things, one in which we have rules in place and people don't adhere to them, or that we don't have rules in place, and that we can, that will, that will, those are two ways that we get thrown into a constitutional crisis. And I was wondering if uh, Ms. McQuaid could address what constitutional crisis means and how we would, uh, how would we uh, deal with that if should that arise? Hmm. Yeah, great question, uh, Rhonda. I appreciate the call. Uh, go ahead, Barb, uh, address that issue. I, I agree with Rhonda that it's a phrase that gets tossed around an awful lot uh, uh, in the media, and I'm not sure it has a strict definition, but I think when there is a standoff between the separate branches of uh, of government, that could create a constitutional crisis when, you know, one side um, violates the other's powers. And so, you know, if the president, I think, were to fire these people who are investigating him, I think that could perhaps fairly be described as a constitutional crisis, because that would uh, perhaps prompt a call for impeachment. I think if President Trump were to defy a lawful order of a court, that could be considered a constitutional crisis that could perhaps require a judge to consider holding the president of the United States in contempt. Mm -hmm. So I think when you have these um, uh, conflicts between different branches of government that cannot be resolved amicably, and usually they do. Usually they work things out. You know, this idea of Robert Mueller wanting to interview President Trump, um, if he doesn't agree to it, he can issue a grand jury subpoena. If President Trump defies that, he, he could potentially be held in contempt of court, and Robert Mueller would have to go to court to get an order on that. Would President Trump continue to defy that order and have marshals have to go arrest him? I mean, I think that could constitute a constitutional crisis right. when it comes to a head like that. I don't think we're there yet, and I think people like to talk about about it, but uh, I think that is what I would consider a constitutional crisis. I'm not sure there's a one agreed upon definition. Sure. Uh, the other kind of crisis that I could see emerging from this is, let's say Mueller concludes his investigation and finds all kinds of things that he thinks the president has done wrong, but because he can't technically indict the president while he's sitting, uh, refers these things to Congress, which is the, the place where that kind of uh, litigation would, would would take place, and they do nothing. Uh, yeah. If if these are very serious charges, if they are uh, charges that have to do with interference in elections and things like that, it would seem to me that landing laying that in the lap of a Congress that you know is of the same party and doesn't seem particularly energized about going after this president, uh, it would seem that that would constitute some sort of uh, constitutional crisis as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's go to Charlie in Royal Oak. Charlie, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you kind of just asked my question. I mean, uh, if Congress isn't willing to impeach him, what next? Is there anything left? I mean, uh, is he obligated to hire another special prosecutor? And if he does, I mean... I would expect there'll be a marshmallow that, you know, won't do anything to him anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what would happen, uh, Barb, if uh, if Mueller finds uh, wrongdoing and doesn't charge uh, that wrongdoing but sends it to Congress and nothing and nothing happens? Well, I guess, you know, members of Congress are still accountable to the American people. We're still a democracy. And so uh, people would uh, vote with, uh, you know, at the uh, ballot box mm-hmm. in the fall. Now, I suppose to the extent President Trump is still popular enough that that defeats uh, any issues, then maybe we've said that as a country we don't care and we'd, we, we'd rather focus on the issues that President Trump cares about. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's the ultimate accountability is that voters get to decide in November who our members of Congress should be. Yeah. 
Okay, Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, now teaching at the University of Michigan. Thanks, as always, for joining us on Detroit Today. Yeah, thanks very much, Stephen. Nice talking with you. Up next, we're going to talk about President Trump's reaction to the latest news and how his responses compare with previous presidents who faced crises. And don't forget, if you miss any of today's conversation, you don't have to miss out entirely. You can go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today and take us with you and then listen when you are ready. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The White House has been in constant crisis mode since the very beginning of the Trump administration. How can a president and his staff possibly run the country while dealing with these kinds of crises? These are not the kinds of things that the president is expected to endure and address as part of his position in the White House. These are internal and individual crises. And of course, this is not the first president or White House to have to juggle the stresses of running a country with the stresses of self-made scandal. Think of Richard Nixon and Watergate or Bill Clinton and his scandals surrounding the extramarital affairs that he had. How have those presidents gone about leading the country while at the same time fighting for their jobs and their personal relationships? And how have they reacted when under this kind of intense scrutiny of their person. Joining us now to talk more about how presidents manage personal scandal is Jeffrey Engel, who is a director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University and author of the book, When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War. Jeffrey Engel, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, good to talk to you again. Yeah. So let's start with this idea of the Trump White House and the turmoil it has been in almost since day one. Uh, give us an idea of how you grade their performance here in comparison to former presidencies. And, and I ask that because I think there's no question that there is a contrast between what we're seeing now and what we've seen in the past. But I wonder, uh, in terms of a qualitative assessment, uh, if, if there is uh, an important difference uh, in terms of uh, quality here. In other words, uh, is this is this White House because it is different necessarily doing it wrong? Well, let me give you the professional historian answer, and then I'll give you the you know political observer slash citizen answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the professional historian answer is we need to ask how we're going to measure chaos because you know over the first year and a half of the Trump administration, we've seen an unprecedented, and I use that word very cautiously, but it's accurate here, unprecedented. Uh, turnaround and turnover of high-level staff. We've never seen an administration lose this many White House or cabinet-level officials this quickly, especially at a time where we've also never seen an administration not fill many mm-hmm. of the positions that are typically uh, filled. But I do have to point out that we want to talk about chaos. We could use different metric. We could talk about problems with the country. And within the first year and a half of the Lincoln administration, for example, we slipped into civil war. Uh-huh. So, you know, there is there is context here that we can put this all in perspective, that this is not necessarily the greatest national 
crisis and chaos and turmoil we've seen, but it is certainly the greatest White House turmoil that we've seen. And and so when they when this kind of turmoil presents itself in a presidency and presents itself early, as it has here, uh, talk about the kinds of things that they weigh inside the White House in terms of how to deal with it. I, I, I love your comparison here to Lincoln, who, of course, faced the greatest strain possible within just a few days of, uh, of, of his being inaugurated as, as president. But that was a policy issue far more than, than a personal issue. And so I wonder if there's a, a substantive difference there in terms of the way that they have to sort of think these things through and then come up with a strategy. You know, we really see a, a lot of variance in the way that presidents deal with their personal crises, that is, when something happens in their lives. And usually the best examples of those are a president who perhaps gets sick, a president who perhaps loses a family member, which mm-hmm. actually happens a, a remarkable amount statistically uh, while in office, and then also a president who, as we might describe this case, you know, creates uh, problems of their own making. Um, and it, it really is a re- very revealing uh, moment in a presidency because the way that presidents react it has no particular pattern, except with one exception. There is no pattern in the sense that um, some presidents allow the personal crisis to completely overwhelm and destroy their entire presidency, and some uh, function just normally, even as their personal life is falling apart. The difference and the way that we understand this difference is it really reveals their innate personal character. Mm -hmm. That is to say, the presidents who appear to have the strongest foundation, if you will, both on understanding who they are, understanding what they believe, and understanding, more importantly, the importance of them, their job as leader, not of themselves, but of the entire country – those are the ones who, frankly, can put their personal crises aside. Again, Lincoln is a is a great example. Not only does he have the Civil War, you know, he has a dysfunctional family life in many ways, but mm-hmm. also more dramatically, he loses a child in the middle of the war, and by all accounts, suffered personally. But there, nobody who worked with him saw any particular difference in his working in his in the way that he was paying attention to conducting the war during that time. And I think that's a testament to Lincoln's great internal strength. We've seen other presidents, on the other hand, uh, Andrew Jackson leaps to mind, who when they had a personal crisis, uh, essentially allowed it to overwhelm everything that they did, the entire workings of the government in many ways in the first two years of the Jackson administration came to a halt because he could not allow the personal vendettas of his life to uh, be separated from the political problems of his day. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Jeffrey Engel, director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, author of the book When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War. We're talking about presidential crises, personal presidential crises, and how those presidents deal with those issues, how they deal with those issues uh, while they also juggle their responsibilities managing sometimes policy crises, but certainly while they are supposed to be running the country. What do you think of the performance of President Donald Trump so far uh, dealing with the crises that have unfolded around him since the day he stepped into the White House? Is he uh, is he doing these things in a way that makes you feel reassured about his management of the country, or are you worried that he is either too distracted 
by these things or driven to uh, extreme and maybe dangerous behavior by the investigations around him. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. In particular, be interested in hearing from listeners uh, which presidents you think in history have handled personal scandal well and which ones you think uh, Donald Trump may be following in the footsteps of by handling them in ways uh, that draw a lot of criticism. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Jeffrey Engel, I'll put that question to you as well. Who do you think in history personally has uh, dealt with uh, these scandals in a way that made some sense? Uh, and, and, and who do you think has sort of fallen into the trap of defensiveness or overly aggressive behavior? You know, not moving beyond scandal, just a personal crisis. I'm, I'm particularly impressed by Lincoln, as I mentioned. I think he's actually the single best example, but Lincoln is the single best example for so many things. Mm-hmm. Also, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, who, of course, had an extremely difficult presidency for his own physical and personal health. Um, you know, obviously, he was the only president we've ever had who was um, uh, mobility impaired, mm-hmm. but also had all kinds of physical problems, uh, largely as a result of the polio. He was constantly sick, for example, constantly had, had uh, sinusitis, if you will. Um, and it, it really had no discernible effect upon his presidency. And I think that's because he was largely such an upbeat and optimistic person that he was able to essentially think of the better days that are going to come for the nation rather than focusing on his own problems. Mm-hmm. You know, by the same token, I, I'm struck when we look at Donald Trump that he um, really seems incapable of putting the problems of the nation beneath the problems of his own life. And I think that his, his reaction to his um, lawyer's office being, um, uh, he used the term broken into, but of course, uh, his reaction to a warrant being issued for his, his, his lawyer's office was really striking the other day because remember he was there and the cameras were there because he was surrounded by his military advisors discussing what to do in Syria. Right. And, and his opening remark, it wasn't even in response to a question, his opening remarks were – so here we have a great example of a president who, in dealing with a national security crisis, has first and foremost on his mind his own personal fate. And, and that's really not a great signal to be sending to the country that, that you are concerned with the country as a whole. Yeah. Uh, I think we have some immediate references, too, or, or immediate historical references that, that I think stand in contrast. If you think of President Obama's grappling with the birther uh, movement, for instance, which was not a scandal of his own making, uh, but was something that threatened, I think, to try to distract him or derail some of the things he wanted to do. He almost it almost seemed like he would not allow that to happen. And of course, that seems like the way that most presidents uh, try to address these kinds of things. Well, and I think that I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, President Obama 
for the first few years of his office, really didn't give a lot of lip service to the birther movement. Mm-hmm. Um, he just basically said, that's ridiculous, go check my birth certificate. Um, but then subsequently began to mock it, uh, which of course was problematic <laughs> because it was a movement in many ways that was inspired and, and uh, promulgated by Donald Trump. But the point of the, either of those reactions is to minimize the problem. Um, if, the, if a president has a problem and says basically banal language, we're going to deal with that, we're going to investigate, we're going to let this, the problem play out, and I can't discuss it because it's an ongoing legal matter, there really is no follow-up question. Um, but President Trump uh, seems incapable of basically, um, frankly, keeping his mouth shut on issues that his lawyers would like him not to discuss and that his political advisors would like him not to discuss. There is nobody in this White House who wants to be discussing the personal problems and scandals of the presidency rather than the president's political agenda. But that he seems uninterested in following the advice that we need to keep focused on uh, the problems of the country as opposed to his own. Okay, Jeffrey Engel, director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University and author of the book, When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War. Thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Always good to talk to you. Up next, we're going to talk about the dearth of new first-time homes here in Metro Detroit. Are you out looking for a home? Are you someone who had a starter home and has moved on? We're going to talk about all of those trials and tribulations next on the program. Stay tuned on Detroit Today. (laughs) 